Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, uh, Stephen Pinecker. And ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited about this guest that I am coming on. Uh, my guest here is Benjamin Schaefer, and he is a, he's a polygamist, uh, or he's affiliated with a polygamist organization, uh, officially called the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I'm told we need to get the correct name out there, which we'll discuss later on, but that's, uh, if you, that's what on paper they're called, but they do go by other names. And I wanted just to have this conversation because, man, I'll tell you, I today I was prepping for this interview and it only took me about 15 minutes to come up with my questions because I've been waiting for this all my life, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Benjamin, thank you for coming on to the program. Um, so <clears throat> I'm very fascinated by your story, but I want us to start and do like a thought experiment. And this thought experiment is um, I'm going to take Benjamin Schaefer in a time machine and we're going to plop him into 19th century Utah, let's say 1870s, 1880s. And Benjamin's going to go around and he's going to run into people that believe in Adam God, believe in the blood atonement, um, believe in polygamy. And Benjamin's going to walk around and he's going to be like, you know, it kind of stinks that there's no air conditioning or internet here, but I feel at home here. Now, oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, in fact, I'd say, you know, in 2021, I walk around Utah with the Internet and air conditioning. And I know people who believe in Adam God. I talk to a lot of people who believe in blood atonement. I know a lot of polygamists. So, yeah, I feel right at home. <laughs> Even in the 21st century. But That's then right. the analogy goes, but if we took just a regular um, LDS folk, say from just out the suburbs of Salt Lake City, and dropped them into the, that same period of time, they would think that they were living, they were living on another planet. <laughs> yeah, they probably would. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the theology, the practice has changed so much that uh, uh, they wouldn't even, uh, the, the Mormons of that time, they wouldn't even recognize them as Mormons. Uh, you take a 21st century uh, Mormon and plop them into pioneer era Utah, and the, the pioneers would be like, what religion are you? And they'd be like, oh, I'm a Mormon. They'd be like, no, you're not. It's obvious you're not a Mormon. <laughs> so, and of course, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to everybody, the full spectrum of the, of the restoration here, folks. And of course, others, yeah, faithful LDS will say, well, that's the point of belonging to a church that has continuing revelation that the church can change and all that. And I understand that argument that you make, but I just thought it's an interesting thought experiment that Benjamin would feel more at home with Brigham Young and folk than the average Mormon would. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about some of those differences that differentiate um, you from the, the main um, Salt Lake branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And let's just start talking about some of those differences. Let's just go, for, let's go for the big one, Adam God. Um, okay. Well, this, talk this, about is that. The, this is the basic difference uh, with theology, right? You're saying uh, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of LDS people would say, oh, well, that's the point of having a, a modern Latter-day prophet with Latter-day revelation, with continuing revelation, is that we can change and adapt our theology. That's not my viewpoint at all. That's not the viewpoint of uh, Christ Church. Yeah, it's, um, we are called the branch, but it is more of a nickname. Um, the actual official name of the church on paper, the, the legal name of the church is just Christ Church. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the branch we're also called, it's on our logo. It says Christ Church, the branch. Um, but yeah, no, we take totally the opposite view, really. Truth is truth. Truth is immutable. Truth is unchangeable. Truth is eternal. 
And so, no, the theology doesn't change over time. That is not the point of modern revelation. The point of modern revelation is greater insight into that ineffable truth. Sometimes truth is hard to explain. If you look at the mysteries of, of many religions, you look at what it means uh, from a Gnostic perspective to experience God. There's a lot of insight. There's a lot of direction that might be necessary. That's what, prof that's what revelation is for, is to, to teach us how to approach God to make the message understandable, but not to change the message itself, not to change the nature of God or the nature of our theology. Those truths don't change over time. So uh, Adam-God doctrine, great place to start. In fact, it's where I often start when I try to explain what I believe to people. Adam-God. Now, at first, that sounds really strange. Why would Adam be God? Uh, you've got people think, of course, the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible, and from, from a Christian point of view, um, you've also got the confusion about the fact that they view Adam and Eve often as the origin of sin, therefore as creatures of sin, uh, and therefore kind of the opposite of God, right? God is holy, man is sinful. Uh, there's the, uh, in Calvinism, for example, there's the total depravity of man concept, where, and, the to and, and of course there's the perfect holiness of God. But, uh, so th these, these things seem to be exact opposites. Well, in Mormon theology, at least originally, the Adam-God doctrine puts Adam in even a totally different perspective. Um, and of course, you have Adam talks to God in the garden, uh, which is sort of like in the New Testament, Jesus talks to God, and yet Jesus is God. So how does that work? Um, the Trinitarian will say, of course, that's fine. You, Jesus can be God and also talk to God. He can be the Son and the Father. Um, it's almost similar problems you run into with Adam God. Um, how can Adam both be the son of God and therefore also the father um, and, and so forth? Uh, one of my favorite Adam God verses, for example, is not from uh, Mormon, uniquely Mormon sources. It's, it's the last verse of uh, Luke chapter three, where it says Adam is the son of God. Very straightforward declaration that Adam is the son of God. Um, that's the whole verse. And so uh, what is the Adam-God doctrine? It's this idea that man and God are not these opposites with God is holy, man is evil. Man and God are the same ontological type, or in other words, um, in less theological terms, we're the same species. We're the same kind of being. The idea that when God created us, he didn't create us like, like a pet or like a sculpture. Um, that he created us the same way that any of us are created. We're literally the offspring of God. Now, this is not also not a uniquely Mormon concept. If you go into other religions, but I'm thinking mostly Eastern religions, you have the idea that there's um, a sacred couple at the beginning. Um, or, uh, for example, at the beginning of, of Shinto, there are some of the very first kami or the very first gods are a father and a mother figure, and that their children then are the inhabitants of the earth. Um, this is also a, a theme in Hinduism um, and, other, and other religions where they view these very first primordial beings um, as gods and that they are the progenitors of mankind. And so Mormonism embraces this idea of Adam God as basically being that we are the offspring or the children directly of the of our divine parents um so yes this makes a father god and a mother god 
So you've got male and female there. Um, and then it also makes the creation of mankind, and this is where a lot of, of course, um, Christians and others get concerned, is that it makes God a sexual being, that we were actually born. When God made man in his image, we interpret that to mean, oh, you look a lot like your dad, or you look a lot like, oh, you've got your mother's eyes, you know, things like that. We take those phrases to mean roughly the same thing. Uh, that we are literally begotten of God. Um, and for us, that's a really important foundational point about our theology. In fact, it's still preserved largely in many ways, even in the mainstream LDS uh, church. Um, one of the most popular songs that we teach for children and so forth is the song, I am a child of God. And the Adam God doctrine is simply taking that literally. I'm a child of, the, the words go like this. I am a child of God. So literally his offspring, and he has sent me here. In other words, we, that's how he sent me to the earth. He, he gave birth to us. She gave birth to us and sent us to the earth, has given me this earthly home with parents kind and dear. In other words, we come to this earth through a natural process. God, God doesn't violate natural laws. God fulfills natural laws. God's the one who created this whole world, and he's the one who created this whole concept of us having families and parents um, that's the way the world works. And why does it work that way? Because God set it up that way. So God isn't going to do something different than his natural order. He's going to fulfill that natural order. Um, and then the course says, lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way, teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. In other words, we believe that God isn't just a faraway being outside this universe that set it up to run on its own, like the deists might believe, or, or even if he's a personal God, as the most religionists believe, uh, we don't believe that he's watching from afar, that he's, we believe instead that he's actually actively participating on this, in this world. And, and the way he did that was to come to create the earth, and then to come to this earth, and actively do what we do to take upon himself mortality, to experience life and death and sickness and health and all the ups and downs of life so that he would participate with us. And in a sense, that's how we're redeemed. Um, the Adam-God doctrine looks at the atonement of Jesus Christ, for example. Jesus says, I do, not, I do nothing save that which I have seen the Father do. Um, he's also called um, by Paul the new Adam, um, Jesus is. And what we believe that that means, the way we look at that theologically, is that um, Adam, that first Adam, is God the Father. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is um, the one who redeems us. So the first one gives us life. Uh, we, we view the fall not as bringing sin into the world, but as bringing life into the world, bringing birth into the world. Um, so it wasn't, a it wasn't a transgression as in it was an evil thing to do to partake of the fruit. It was a good and necessary thing that made it possible for us to have life. But the problem with life is it ends in death. So how do we overcome death? And that's through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ said, look, I'm doing the same pattern. The same way that my father came down to the earth to give us life, I give up, I, I'm bringing eternal life. Um, and so through, as an Adam all die, therefore as in, through Adam we gain mortality, through Christ we gain eternal life. And so we see them as doing the same kind of thing, 
one does one, the other does the other. Now, that whole scheme, that whole theology, it's extra biblical. I, I'll grant Christians that. It goes far beyond what the Bible says. The Bible gives a symbolic allegory, I believe, of this garden scene that's meant to teach us important lessons about our origin, about the role of male and female, about how it is we're to live our lives. A bunch of important lessons, true, but this whole, this whole pattern, this whole theology, um, you know, the Bible doesn't teach theology. The Bible teaches stories and analogies, and then that theology is built onto it. And so we, I believe that when Joseph Smith um, gave revelations, such as in the Doctrine and Covenants, um, the King Follett Discourse, and other things like that, he was explaining beyond what the Bible contains so that we can understand the Bible in a deeper way. So I don't believe that it's um, contrary to biblical teaching, um, this Adam-God doctrine. I believe it's all over the place in the Bible, actually. I could point you to a few dozen more verses, probably. Um, but again, how do we interpret the Bible is the question. And so Mormons, we often take this view that uh, instead of believing in biblical inerrancy or biblical completeness, we view the Bible as um, sacred, sacred books, yes. Uh, they they point us to God, but that they're only the, but they're best understood through the lens of revelation, through our experience with God directly, uh, somewhat somewhat full of Gnostic heresies, Mormonism is, uh, but then also um, through modern prophets like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and so forth that can expand upon our understanding of the Bible and help us interpret it in a more complete way. So I'm just getting back to the Adam God and just going back to the very beginning of the story. Is Eve heavenly mother? Yes. That is one of those interesting logic things. The moment you realize that uh, Adam, wait, if Adam's the father, what does that make Eve? Yes. Eve is the mother. In fact, uh, it says in the Bible, of course, right in Genesis, um, that Eve is the mother of all living. And from a Mormon viewpoint, in believing in heavenly parents, that are, that we're spiritually and physically begotten of God, that we're of the same species. Um, yeah, that's exactly what that, that title means. Eve or Hava in Hebrew, uh, is, it basically means the mothers. It's, the, uh, it's a divine feminine a motherhood uh, type uh, symbology there in the Kabbalah and stuff and such like that. So the, does God have more than one wife? In, yeah, in Mormon cosmology, there's this general assumption that there is um, polygamy in heaven as well as on earth, and therefore, yes, uh, here's, here's where this really comes in. It's not even necessarily so much as to whether or not Adam and Eve and Elohim and these Hebrew terms should be interpreted to be plural. Um, that's been a big debate. A lot of uh, Mormons will point that out. They'll say Elohim means gods, not just one god. It means multiple gods. Uh, Adam it could be plural, or it could even just mean mankind. So for example, when you see the word man in the Bible, um, it could also have been translated as Adam. It just depends on the context. And that, of course, depends on the interpreter and the interpretation. So for example, when Jesus says, is referred to as the son of man, those of us who believe in Adam God doctrine think it would be just as appropriate, in fact, in many cases more appropriate, to translate that term man in Hebrew in, those, in that context to be to say Jesus is the son of Adam, everywhere that that appears, and that's multiple places throughout the New Testament. Um, same, but beyond that, beyond that, 
um, of any of those questions, like Eve being a plural word in Hebrew, um, is the fact that what about Mary? This is where this is where Brigham Young really started blowing people's minds about the Adam God doctrine. Uh, people were uncomfortable enough with Joseph Smith's teachings, I think, but I think where he really got uh, a lot of the controversy rolling uh, was when he talked about how Mary is the wife of the Father, and because she's the mother of Jesus Christ. So the Father and Mother of Jesus Christ are Mary, being that mother, right? And then Eve. Now you've got two wives for God, two holy wives of God in one book of scripture. And so, yeah, that kind of brings up the whole polygamy question. And of course, there's things that go beyond that, but they get into Midrash and other more speculative things, less biblical sources. Um, there's discussion of Lilith being a wife of Adam and other things like that. So once again, more polygamy. So just, I, you know, just trying to think here. So if God has multiple wives, and then they have spirit children, mm -hmm. right? Would it matter if you were a direct descendant of God and heavenly mother or one of God's other wives? Would there, would there be a certain, uh, a certain hierarchy uh, in, this, in the spirit realm in the preexistence? You know, I don't really think that in polygamy uh, in general that there's a whole lot of hierarchy going on. Um, polygamy can be a very egalitarian practice, actually. Um, so no, I don't think so. In fact, here's another, here's another heresy for you. Um, Mormons, uh, especially these early Mormons, talked a lot about the polygamy of Jesus Christ and the children of Jesus. Uh, this is something that uh, the pop culture only became aware of with things like the Da Vinci Code. But this idea that Jesus had children um, has been taught by Mormon leaders from the beginning of Mormonism. And uh, there's this idea that Jesus married Mary and Martha, that they were both his wives. And that's why there was a domestic dispute, for example, as to uh, whether or not Jesus should send Mary to help Martha uh, to feed the, the group that had come to their home uh, there in Bethany, or if Mary should sit and hear the words of Jesus. Well, we view that as a more or less domestic question that they were asking the husband, not something they'd be asking a stranger. Um, but beyond that, we believe that Jesus had children. So again, this hierarchy question to get to that. Does it matter if you're a son of God, a descendant of God, because you descend from Adam, or are you a son of God because you're a descendant of Jesus Christ? It's just, it's all in the family. It's a different generation, perhaps. But we're all descendants of God, and we're all and as children of God, that divinity of God resides within us. Uh, we don't view that as separate from man. We don't think the nature of man is evil and the nature of God is good. We believe that the divine nature of God resides within each of us, and that essentially the sacred blood of Jesus Christ, which atones for sin, is the blood that flows in our veins. So are there descendants, direct descendants of Jesus Christ alive here on earth right now? Yes. In fact, I would say probably a great many um, of the people um, listening to this would be descendants of Jesus Christ because we're talking a long time ago. It's been over 2000 years. Um, and we believe that those descendants of Jesus Christ spread throughout the Middle East and Europe and, and North Africa. And so, yeah, uh, there was actually an interesting statement, though I don't have a reference for you. I'd have to find it. 
uh, where Rulin Allred, he's a fairly famous um, Norman fundamentalist leader um, in our tradition as well. Um, and he said that he felt that those who embraced the fullness of the gospel and lived the order of plural marriage and all these other things that we associate with the fullness of the gospel, um, he said that they are called to do it because of their bloodline, and that it would only be the descendants, direct descendants of Jesus Christ, who would fully embrace the fullness of the gospel. So, so there is kind of a hierarchy if it's only the ones that have Jesus's blood in them that would fully embrace, right? Was, wouldn't you say there's a, a distinction? Well, okay. Then? Well, does lineage matter? That's kind of I, I'm what I'm hearing in your question. And yeah, I do think that lineage is a thing. Lineage exists. Uh, those who are the Cohen uh, or the Levites, those who are descendants of Aaron. Mormonism recognizes, for example, in the Doctrine and Covenants that uh, the bishopric rightly belongs to the sons of Aaron and things like that. So we do believe that uh, birth isn't an accident. It's not just a random lottery. Your family heritage is part of who you are. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we do things like work for the dead uh, in Christ Church. We have temples where we continue baptisms, endowments, and other ordinances for the dead. Um, and we do those in the original form, not in the cut-down version that uh, the LDS Church is doing. Um, and we do all those ordinances for the dead, but why, right? We, I don't see it as a salvation question. It's a different question in Mormonism, usually a question of exaltation. Uh, which is, you know, there's there are differences there. Um, but why do we do it? We do it partly because um, it redeems each of us. This isn't, I'm not just doing it for random dead people. I don't just baptize any random dead person. Okay. At least in Christchurch, we don't. We, do, we never do any temple work for a stranger. Uh, we only do work for our own ancestors, our own family members, because it exalts me for my family to be closer to God and it exalts them for me to do it for them. So it's all about our family connection being, being organized. You know, this life is filled with messiness, filled with difficulty and conflict, all kinds of problems. But as we put ourselves into order with God and into order with each other, that divine union that exalts all of us, that gives us all greater insight and, and hope that you know, that everything will be made right. Uh, what is that promise of, of the atonement of Christ? We, since we don't see it in terms of like sin and redemption, because I think we have a different definition of sin than Christians do. Um, we view it instead of like, there's, there's pain, there's suffering, there's disorder, there's problems. And little by little, the promise of Christ is that Christ is helping us put that into order, drying those tears, uh, healing those wounds. And so when I, when I bring my family into clo closer into that divine order, I'm healing those wounds of the past, essentially. And that, that makes my family more in order and brings me closer to God. Um, you mentioned about how some of Christ's um, um, lineage may have been in North Africa. Is it possible mm -hmm. that there could be a, 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 a Black person that could be a descendant of Jesus? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, if you look at the um, speculations of people uh, like Dan Brown, as well as, uh, you know, you can also look at, there's a very Mormon book called The, Dyna uh, the, the Sacred Blood on a Mormonism. Let's see, it's The Dynasty of the Holy Grail, uh, which lays this out. 
these possibilities out. Um, it talks about certain individuals who, for example, were um, almost certainly descendants of Christ and why they thought it was connected and all that sort of thing. And when we and when the LDS Church did all of um, Barack Obama's uh, lineage, for example, he connected to a bunch of those guys. So yes, I think it's highly probable, over 99% likely, that oh, Barack Obama, for example, is a descendant of Jesus Christ. As, and that just sounds so crazy to say out loud, doesn't it? But I, I really believe that, the, you know, a huge number of, um, of, of us really are descendants of Jesus Christ. It's been 2,000 years. Um, once you look at how many ancestors, right, you have two parents, four grandparents, eight great grandparents, and it's exponential. It just keeps going. If any one of those in 2,000 years was, was Christ, yeah, that's actually a huge proportion of that whole region. So Christ, if a black person is a descendant of Jesus Christ, would they qualify for the priesthood? Interesting question. So I'm going to back you up and talk about priesthood a little bit. What is priesthood? Why do we do it? In Christ church, we do not have, we do not believe anyone is entitled to the priesthood. We, if we have a ban, we have a ban against everyone. The only way to be ordained, and not everyone is, in Christ's church to the priesthood, is if a revelation is received instructing you to be ordained. And that is on a case-by-case -case basis, every single person. And actually, I think all we're really doing when we're doing that is that we're fulfilling one of the original articles of faith written by Joseph Smith. We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands. We take that really literally. We don't ordain people because they've reached a certain age. And say in the LDS church, you know, you, they ordain every 12-year-old boy a deacon. Every 18-year-old man um, becomes an elder. Um, we don't do it that way. Uh, so would a black man be entitled to the priesthood? And in Mormon history, that gets really convoluted. And I think the problem is, is that we've substituted a true doctrine, which is the doctrine of lineage that I mentioned earlier, that like, for example, the sons of Aaron, they were, unto them rightly belongs the bishopric, for example. Um, descendants of Christ rightly have the priesthood, but it's, con it's not that simple. It is a big, um, it's a big mess. So how do you sort that out? One way um, that Mormons have really lost sight of, I think, is the original teachings about the patriarchal blessing. The reason that I believe it was called the patriarchal blessing was it was to declare your lineage. And sometimes, of course, siblings, even siblings, full siblings, could have different lineages. How is that, right? They literally have the same lineages. But it's because we don't all have the same calling. We don't all have the same purpose. So... It can be that I'm called to be one thing and I can have a full sibling and they say, sorry, it's not in your lineage. It's not for you. So merely being able to claim Jesus Christ or Aaron or any of these other people, um, these priesthood lineages, being able to claim one of them as your ancestor doesn't entitle you to anything. No one's entitled to the priesthood, in my opinion. The priesthood is conferred by the Lord through revelation. Um, and yes, that confirms your lineage, which is also a thing. I believe lineage is also important. But race is a poor, poor substitute for lineage. 
right? And now generally, yes, uh, if people in your lineage are of a certain race, you'll be of that race, right? But we're all mixed. We're all mixed over tons of eons of time into different okay. lineages. Now, um, this brings up the, uh, the difficult doctrine that some lineages were blessed to the priesthood mm -hmm. and some lineages were cursed as to the priesthood. Right. Um, in spite of that fact, now in 2021, I think the only reasonable way to uh, verify someone's lineage is by revelation. And, th and that's what I believe that original purpose of the uh, patriarchal blessing was, for example, was to declare your lineage. The lineage to which you were called had something to do with what calling you were called to do. So you said not every, nobody in one sense is entitled to the priesthood. Is it possible mm -hmm. that a person of black African descent um, could be called by someone in your group into the priesthood? Yes, but I think in general, traditionally, it would seem unlikely. Okay, okay. Um, At the same time, if a, if, if, if a revelation was received, if our key holder said, you know, so-and-so, he might look to you like he's from a cursed lineage because you've conflated race with lineage, but he is a true descendant of this important priesthood lineage, and we're ordaining him to the priesthood. We would sustain that. I do believe the general members of the church would sustain that ordination. Now, traditionally speaking, though, Mormon fundamentalists, we stick to original doctrines. And Joseph Smith, not just Brigham Young, but Joseph Smith talked a lot about this doctrine of lineage. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants in many places, including um, insinuations about Joseph Smith's own lineage having important um, antecedents, you know. Um, and we do believe that lineage is important, but we believe that lineage is best known by revelation. And of course we do our genealogy too. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, it's one of those things. I, I know people who were called to priesthood offices. I know people who were related to them who were not called to those uh, same priesthood offices. Now you say that, you know, we're all mixed up and it's really, you know, just, it's kind of a mess and everything like that. What about, and I might be taking this out of context or maybe not exact quote, but when, when Brigham Young talk about the, the one drop of blood of African descent, um, how, how would you deal with that? I don't want to fault Brother Brigham too much, but he wasn't the first one who brought up the one drop rule, okay? He was also, to a certain extent, a product of his time. Okay. And he was adapting something that his audience was familiar with words, terms, concepts his audience was familiar with and applying them in a church setting. That is not to say that we're bound by the traditions, the, the interpretations that fit in our culture. And so I believe that he was, he was talking about the fact that, look, if, if you are cursed as to the priesthood, you can't have it. I would agree with that premise that he was, he was explaining, but I don't agree that that means we need to extrapolate that into using race as some kind of blunt instrument when what we really need is the scalpel of understanding exactly what someone is called to do if somebody is called of god to fulfill a certain calling on the earth the lord will make it possible for them to fulfill that calling. and i believe that part of that is is that we're born into families not by accident that our lineage is important but far beyond that, how do you know what that lineage is? You know it by revelation. Okay, so I thank you. I really appreciate you going down this path with me. Um, I, I, um, 
I find it very fascinating. There's just so many implications when you when you when you accept yeah. one thing. There's this whole cascading effect of where you're going, where right, and where, and, and this is sort of, and you know, this is a priesthood question that I I would prefer if people thought of us at least in Christchurch. We're a tiny minority, okay, uh, is what we actually are. We're a little tiny tribe that's just trying to hold on to existence at this point, hmm. and the we view priesthood just a little bit more so like a Jewish person would view being a Cohen. You're born into it. You're not necessarily just going to do it because it has some position of power or authority. In fact, in a lot of cases, it isn't a position of power or authority. It's an obligation to fulfill certain ritual duties, or it's an obligation to fulfill certain, um, you know, service acts. It's not uh, necessarily a matter of dictating in a, in a position of power. That's where a lot of these priesthood questions are really, really important, why they keep coming up, is that people say, well, yeah, but you've got different classes, and you've got an underclass of people who don't have access to the same positions of power. In Christ's church, there are no positions of power. Our, I'm talking about a lay clergy. I mean, our prophets here in Revelator, our first presidency, our Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, they're literally just poor renunciates. They give up everything for the gospel. They do their best to scrape by. They have ordinary jobs when they can get them. Um, some of them are itinerant preachers. Um, traveling without purse or script, literally without a place to lay their head. So we don't necessarily have, it's not something you're going to want because you want power to have, to have priesthood in Christ church. Interesting. Um, and so we're not going to, we're not going to, it's not like anybody can abuse that power either um, to tell anybody what to do okay. either. Well, this, is, this is great. I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's very eye-opening to me. Um, I don't know if we're going to get to it in this particular um, uh, dialogue because uh, there's so much I want to cover with you, but um, it was, you sent me a Zoom link to your service uh, the other day and I oh. sat in for, for about 20 minutes and uh, folks, I have to tell you, it was not what I expected. And I look oh, really? for us to talk about that, but I want to continue our, our doctrinal questions. And I want to move mm -hmm. into um, the concept of blood atonement. Now, as a born again Christian who's mm -hmm. been bought and paid for by the blood of the, by the, blood of the Savior, right? Mm -hmm. um, I believe that what Christ did at the cross was that he, 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 he cleansed me, he made me a new creature, um, and I am one of his children. Okay, um, I believe that Jesus's uh, sacrifice at the cross calls call covers all sins, mm -hmm. including murder. So, when you guys have this idea of blood atonement, it's a it's a it's it's a very foreign concept to me because it seems to limit what Jesus did at the cross. I see the problem. Now, I when I teach blood atonement. I start with the blood of Christ. It's about the atoning blood of Jesus Christ at the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what blood atonement really is. It's about the power of Christ's blood to atone for sin. To me, that's the heart and soul of the entire doctrine of blood atonement. And of course, that then that leads to the next question. Wait, blood? Why blood? What has blood got to do anything? What has sacrifice got to do with anything? And then I kind of go into the Old Testament question. Okay, well, there was the blood of the sacrifice. There's this symbolic atonement done through the blood of the sacrifice, for example, that 
the first, uh, the first fruits of the field, but also the firstlings of the flock were given in sacrifice. And then in the ancient tabernacle and in the ancient temple, that there were these animal sacrifices. And each of those represented important attributes of the divine. And of course, from our viewpoint, they were, they were forward-looking sacrifices, looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of the Son of God, which overcomes all sin. Mormonism, to some extent, is an Old Testament and a New Testament reconstruction. A lot of Mormons today, or at least a lot of the mainstream LDS, um, they'll view the restoration um, movement, this whole thing with Joseph Smith and all the stuff we're doing, this Mormonism idea, as a restoration of the original Christian church. In Christchurch, we actually don't necessarily view it that way because we view um, this as being in, there's a pattern and that we're essentially trying to restore the covenant of Abraham all the way back to Abraham. So it's not just a restoration of the ancient Christian church. It's a step further back, all the way back to um, the original religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore also the other patriarchs, including Adam, all the way back to the beginning. Um, And so there's some symbology about this. Now, Blood atonement doctrine mostly comes from the pioneer period, the type of doctrine that you're concerned about, that what if, what are you saying about blood atonement? Are you saying that, that Christ's blood doesn't atone for all sins, only some sins? Um, And what's this about the sinner spilling his blood on the ground? Well, I would generally say that my view on that from what I read, um, but you know, these are my lenses, these are my rose-colored glasses perhaps, the big questions at the time of Brigham Young were really about whether or not criminals should be hung or shot. That was the big question. It was, it was a political question. And there was a lot of hanging going on. And Brigham Young was expressing disgust for that because the Bible explicitly says that nothing and no one should ever be strangled to death, that it's an unclean act. It's a pagan act to strangle. And so Brigham Young was saying, no, 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 no. Just as Christ shed his blood, so should the blood of the sinner be shed. In other words, not strangled. Let's do this in a kosher way. If we're going to be executing people for heinous capital crimes, they should be executed in a biblical manner. They should not be executed in this pagan way that is specifically prohibited. Um, in in the Old Testament. And honestly, I think that's about as deep as it goes. The doctrine of blood atonement is the doctrine of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And all this other stuff about like murderers and having their blood shed and all that sort of thing, that's frontier justice questions about hanging and really doesn't apply to us. Okay, that's very, okay, that's very fascinating. Now, because a lot of, but for instance, I I just remember like Mark Hoffman's father uh, was very, was very concerned about his son getting life a life sentence he'd rather his son uh, would have been in front of a firing squad because uh, to have for blood for t- blood right. atonement purposes um if that that was his concern was that a correct reading of the doctrine that mark hoffman's father had or do you think mark hoffman's father- i think mark hoffman I, I think that that became a really important part of the the tradition sure but i don't know if i want to go so far as to say doctrine an important part of the tradition was was that um, it should be done in a biblical way, essentially. 
your so, blood should be spilled. So there could right? be instances of somebody who murders somebody, but they don't necessarily have to be, uh, the, their, shed, their, their blood doesn't necessarily have to be shed in order for them to be, to have their sins atoned. Right. It, in, the, in the sense that sin leads to death. This is also in the New Testament. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death. And we talk about uh, certain sins being unforgivable, being so bad that they're the unforgivable sin. If you are in that, if you're in the realm of capital crime, um, Mormonism traditionally looked at a lot of that stuff as as very unforgivable, horrible acts of rejection of God, to that they've turned away from the light of God and so forth. Um, and so there's this idea that if there is redemption for them, that redemption is in the resurrection. And so the idea being, and I, I'm not saying this is doctrinal, but the idea being that forgiveness is through the resurrection. It's not like, oh, well, it's fine uh, that you've murdered. Here, have another pistol and go out into public again. You know what I mean? It's like, no, this person's a murderer. They're dangerous. We're going to execute them. That wasn't even discussed. Back, back in those days, back in the 1800s, there was nobody in any segment of American society that even considered that murderers should not be executed. That was just the whole culture everywhere. Nobody was nobody was arguing for anything else. So I don't know how much we can put those ideas into their, you know, into the out of out of its context into that time. Okay, I like um, that. I, I like that. That's very interesting insight there. I appreciate that. So so yeah, I mean, uh, doctrinally, there's a lot of important doctrine around the atonement of blood. Yeah. Um, but whether or not that has anything to do with executing people or how they're executed, uh, that became a big conflict, mostly because of the, uh, the actual politics of 19th century America and the revulsion that Mormons had at the act of hanging. So the politics of the 20th and 21st century has seen the um, elimination of capital punishment in much of the Western world, in much of the Christian yeah. Western world. Um, and it's also illegal in many states in, in the Union. Um, mm -hmm. Is that and so at this point, uh, I don't think it's any loss to Mormonism, just means we don't have to continue with a kind of a tired debate. Okay, that sounds okay. That's very interesting. I like the concept, the context. I'm glad that we went in that time machine to the 19th century and then ha yeah. have that conversation. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's now talk about um, John Taylor and the 1886 revelation. Um, I want my audience to know that I have talked to scholars, and um, most of them agree that the photograph of John Taylor's um, re revelation was written in his handwriting, and most would say that yes, John Taylor did issue this. The question—that's—that's yes. uh, that's a historical. And when you say most, I'm also—I'm—I'm I'm kind of wondering if there are any holdouts still. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think I got the impression it's settled academic knowledge that we know the provenance of the 1886 revelation. John Taylor wrote that. I, yeah, I guess maybe for some faithful members out there, they have a hard time hearing that, you know, if you're a mainstream LDS. Um, but it is pretty well established that that's the case. Now, the question I have is, um, there was a group of people that then claimed the mantle that was given to them to continue the mm -hmm. practice. Um, that's where the controversy is, because not everybody, not all historians would agree that that was indeed the case. So maybe make your case. Sure make your case well because there's a big difference between a historical claim and a spiritual one right mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to say there was a guy named joseph smith okay history can prove that there was a guy 
But the big question, the spiritual claim is, was this guy a prophet? Well, that's a spiritual claim. And that's not something that is easily as easily proven or disproven, right? That's, um, that's a matter of faith. Um, same thing with something like the 1886 revelation. Sure, there's a revelation. John Taylor wrote, down, wrote it down. It says that it's in the voice of God. Well, but what does it mean? Um, people like, say, Brian Hales, for example, he accepts the hist historical nature of the 1886 revelation. He simply says he doesn't think it has anything to do with polygamy, essentially. And now I think the context, from my point of view, of course, it has a lot to do with polygamy. But I view polygamy as one facet of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the principles. It's one of the things that it's just it's in there, you know, um, sort of like the Sabbath day is in there. It's not the end all be all, but it's one of the things. Um, and I think that from the context, it's pretty clear that um, what the Lord had to say to John Taylor applied very heavily to exactly the types of conflicts and questions they were having about plural marriage at the time. And therefore, it was an insightful and useful revelation on that topic. Uh, but it is true that the terms plural marriage do not appear in the 1886 revelation. Um, it talks about the new and everlasting covenant. Well, what is the new and everlasting covenant? That's actually a broader question than just plural marriage. The new and everlasting covenant en encompasses essentially the covenant relationship of God with his people. And, uh, you know, you get a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, and a Mormon all in the same room, and they're all going to have a different definition as to what... God's covenant relationship with his people is all about. Um, however, you know, from John Taylor's context, I believe that it was very much about plural marriage. So um, the, the contention is, is that at, when this revelation was received, it was direction from God not to change God's laws. For example, um, it says in that revelation, I have not revoked my law. He also says, I cannot revoke an everlasting covenant for my words are everlasting and cannot be abrogated nor done away with. It says in that revelation, basically, I think this comes down to a fundamental question. I use that word on purpose of the difference between a fundamentalist and a mainstream LDS person is truth fundamental. In other words, can the truth change, you know, um, are, are the facts just the facts? Uh, for example, um, could it have been true that Adam, God, was true? It was, it was an eternal truth throughout all of eternity that Adam was God. But then when Spencer Devin Kimball says he's not, then all of eternity, the past, the present, the future, reality itself changed to conform to this new truth. You know, it's like, it's like this question, like, is it the truth or is it my truth and your truth? Okay, I feel like the LDS church is between a rock and a hard place on this one because they've had so many contradictory truths, truths um, that they have to believe that somehow when the prophet speaks, he can change reality itself. You know, the past, the present, the future, it all changes because he said it does, that God would justify his prophet by changing reality to comport with their new truth. Their new ordinances, their new, you know, all these things. Mormon fundamentalism, of course, takes the opposite view. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. Therefore, true prophets cannot contradict each other on matters of absolute truth. Because the truth doesn't change, because prophets don't contradict each other, therefore, the ordinances of God do not change. 
you cannot have a new endowment ceremony, for example. You cannot have baptism by immersion one day and by sprinkling on another day. Either it's this way or it's, or, or it's that way, but whichever way it is, it has to be eternally the same. The same ordinances, the same truths, the same prophecies, the same doctrines from Adam, from before the foundations of the earth, to Christ, to the ends of eternity. It can never change because it is the truth. And even God himself has to comport with those truths as one of the most interesting innovations in Mormonism to try to answer some of these theological questions. Take Alma chapter 42, for example. Um, Alma instructs is instructing his sons. And he says in there, God is God because he fulfills his law. If God were to break his own law, to act against his nature, then God would cease to be God. And this is kind of a, a, an attempt to answer some of these weird theological questions like, if God can do anything, can he make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Well, if he can't do that, then he can't do everything, right? Because it's a self-contradictory statement, things like that. Um, Alma 42 tries to rectify that by saying, look, God is a God of the natural order. He made these rules. He is God because he fulfills them. So it's not that God cannot lie in the sense that he's incapable of lying. It's that God doesn't lie because God is truth. He embodies truth. He's filled with truth. He doesn't lie because he chooses not to lie. He chooses to fulfill all truth. And so... One of the things that I think is important to my audience, because, you know, I have a very diverse audience from um, mm -hmm. very progressive to very, very conservative, a community of Christ and many other people, just a, a hodgepodge of the restoration. Mm -hmm. And I want people to know that just generally through my studies of uh, history of this period of time, that it's the general consensus is through the historians is that they were doing the, Adam, they were teaching the Adam God doctrine in the St. George Temple. Oh, it's certainly there, but plenty of other places. I believe Joseph Smith taught it extensively in Nauvoo. Well, okay, now that would be like a like a belief statement, but I'm I'm, I'm in which is fine. But I'm trying well, to there, there, there's evidence and of there's, it too. But then I again, people people say, well, Adam God is this, right? But that's my straw man, so I'm going to knock that over now. Okay, right. People will do that too, right? right? But I'm, and I'm just like, trying no. The, the broader view that I take of Adam God, Joseph Smith clearly extensively taught it, uh, historically provably. I mean, okay. Doctrine and Covenant section 27 alone is sufficient evidence. Okay. So you feel that there's a, you, you could make a very strong case that Joseph Smith indeed taught the autumn. Of course, you, were, you would believe right. that. But, but you that's think in a broader sense, that. right? Mm -hmm. You yeah. want to narrow down the Adam God doctrine to just a couple of specific weird particulars or a couple of statements of Brigham Young and say, that's the only thing that qualifies? Then yeah, okay, I guess maybe not, okay. but. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so. I guess what I, I guess a question I have for you is, do you think like if you were to talk to evangelical Christians and were to talk about polygamy, would you go to them and encourage them to uh, take up the practice? No. In fact, actually, um, there's a another revelation to John Taylor, also not canonized, where he, ex he explicitly asked the Lord, is this a principle or doctrine that we teach the world? And the Lord told him no. So our take, um, and this is also in the Doctrine and Covenants, but this one's actually canonized um, in the Doctrine and Covenants, is that we teach only baptism and repentance. We teach faith in God, repentance, and baptism by water. That is all we preach to the world. Now, after people have entered baptism, then we do teach other deeper doctrines like we're discussing today. But we don't actually go out and preach it, and we certainly don't encourage the practice. 
in anybody outside of it because we believe that it can only truly be practiced in righteousness when it is being practiced under the direction of God by revelation, essentially like that priesthood ordinance, for example. Um, we don't believe that just anybody is a priest just because they want to be, right? We believe that there's an order, that there's ordinances, ordinations, things like that. There's an order to God's house and God's way of doing things. We don't encourage people to do any of those things out of order. Well, polygamy is just one small facet of one, one note on the in the grand orchestra of the gospel. And that one note only comes in where it comes in in the score. So and that doesn't about, apply to anybody who isn't already essentially an endowed member. Okay, so if let's then switch the audience. Would you encourage people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints based in Salt Lake City, Utah, to practice polygamy? No. Because you don't think they're, they have no, is their priesthood no longer valid? No. I mean, basically, again, we believe that it comes down to order. And because they're not making the same covenants with God and they're not doing the same ordinances anymore, there's no, there's no ordinance for God to recognize or not recognize, uh, essentially. Unless you do the ordinances, ordinances the way the Lord commanded you to, um, then yeah, you didn't do it. If you didn't do it, you didn't do it. So, so yeah, I would not encourage them to, to do that out of order either. Uh, on the same token, I would not encourage any member of Christ church to enter plural marriage. If it's meant that they're meant to live that law, it will be because it came in order in their life as part of the ordinances of God in the right time and place. That would be revealed by God as they're being obedient and fulfilling these various commandments. It, it won't just happen because they want it necessarily. So <clears throat> the other groups um, that are practicing the, uh, that are practicing the principle today, mm -hmm. are they doing it in a valid manner? Not fully, no. Um, that's not to say that I find any fault with their marriages any more than I find fault with anybody's marriages. Okay. Um, we're, we're one little tiny tribe, like I said, okay. We're not the entire world. Um, people get married all the time in various religions, in various settings. Um, that's their marriages. That's, that's fine. That's, uh, and, and so I, and I'm very agnostic about whether or not that's a polygamous marriage or a monogamous marriage. Um, their marriage practices are their marriage practices. I hope that they have good marriages. I hope that they love one another. I hope they have healthy relationships, but, but that, that doesn't make it a celestial marriage. Okay. Celestial marriage is an ordinance of God that has to be recognized by God and done in, in that proper order. Okay. So now just an example, like Ogden Kraut, who uh, remained independent, um, yep. uh, is probably one of your intellectual, uh, apologists, if you will, for yeah. uh, your, your group, would you consider his marriages uh, proper celestial marriages? No. However, that doesn't mean that they were bad marriages or wrong marriages. Um, you know, they're, they're just as valid and just as good as anyone's marriage. But do I believe that there's still more yet for them to do in order to seal those marriages? Because again, a marriage and a sealing aren't the same thing either. A sealing is to take a marriage, a good, valid marriage, and to seal it for eternity and make it part of God's order. I believe that they could do with a little bit more sealing of those marriages. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with their marriages. I, I don't find any fault with them. I think that's wonderful. 
In fact, uh, I've really enjoyed um, meeting the Krauts and and their families. They have wonderful families. I think that's that's a good thing. Interesting. But uh, you know, in an eternal sense, how do we seal those marriages together? And that's a different question. And that's part of the process of exaltation. I think that they, along with the rest of mankind, have the opportunity to receive those blessings whenever it comes time in the proper order for them to receive them. So you say you're a small tribe, you're a small group, and you believe that you have pre the, the priesthood of authority. Would you agree to that? Yes. And it's because we're in order. It's not about ordination. I want to tell you a quick little story here. When I was on my mainstream LDS mission, yes, I was in the mainstream LDS church before I joined Christ Church. And I, um, I actually did a lot of stuff in the LDS church. I was a temple worker in three different temples. I was um, a seminary teacher. I worked for CES. I, I did a lot of things in the LDS church. But one of the first things I did, of course, was I served my regular LDS full-time mission. And I knocked on a door uh, in Ohio. And I was surprised to find that we had knocked on the door of an Eastern Orthodox Archbishop. And he was a nice guy. And he said, hey, well, why your church? I mean, I've got, obviously I have my church, uh, very important leader for the whole region um, in the Orthodox community. And he said, just give me your best shot. You know, why, why would someone like me want to even want to consider converting to Mormonism? And I was, you know, bold young missionary. So I was like, all right, let's hit him with the hard stuff. And I told him, it's the great apostasy. I'm sorry, but in spite of the fact that you're doing your best, you don't have the fullness of the authority. If you want that, you have to be ordained in the proper order. He said, oh, I was ordained in the proper order. And I was like, well, yeah, but the problem is when the apostles were killed, you know, the priesthood line didn't continue. And he's like, no, it did. I'll show you. And I thought, what? No, no, that's what I'd always thought I'd learned in Mormonism was this idea that there was a loss of ordination order. And he said, oh, well, there might be in the Catholic Church and there might be in the in the Protestants because, you know, uh, but there but there is but the Orthodox. No, we, we've got the original. And I was like, really? And he showed me he showed me this guy ordained me, laid his hands on my head, ordained me to the priesthood. He was ordained by this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy showed me the whole chart all the way back to Jesus Christ. He said, there is no break in this line. I was, I was ordained by someone who was ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody all the way back to Jesus Christ. I have the proper ordination. Blew my mind, blew my mind as a young missionary, you know, 20 years old. Gave me, gave me a pause for thought. What is it that gives a person the priesthood? Because I still didn't feel that he had the priesthood. But I couldn't, I couldn't argue with his ordination line. Um, this fell into further relief, of course, when I started to think maybe the LDS church doesn't have the fullness of the priesthood. Can Russell M. Nelson show you a priesthood line where he can tell you who ordained him and who ordained him and who ordained him back to Jesus Christ? Yes, he can. But I don't think he has the priesthood. Why not? Because the priesthood isn't about who ordained you. It's about whether or not you are fulfilling all the laws, rights, and ordinances of the gospel. And so I asked this thought, thought experiment. John the Baptist, he has the authority to baptize. Everyone recognizes that. Even Jesus recognized that John had the power to baptize. Could John baptize by sprinkling? This is a very Baptist question, but also a very big question for Mormons. Could John the Baptist, who has the authority to baptize, could he say, you know what? I'm not going to immerse you. I'm going to sprinkle you. Could he do that? Well, the modern LDS people who believe that 
sometimes the facts can change. Sometimes the doctrines can change. Sometimes the ordinances can change. A lot of them will say, well, yeah, I guess he could. He has the authority. Why not? Why can't he just change baptism? But from my viewpoint, no, John the Baptist doesn't have the authority to baptize by sprinkling because he still has to obey the commandment. In fact, I'll take it a step further. God himself does not have the authority to change his commandments. Because by doing so, he would be violating his own nature and making himself a liar. And God other, will not lie. The, one of the other restorationist movements that came about was the, the Campbellites. And mm -hmm. in their version of the Bible, they changed it to John the Immerser. And you can, right. just to make the point, the Baptist point. Yeah, but, but <laughs> there's some there's actually some validity to using Immerser. Oh, sure. And so because baptized to means to immerse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's and, and I've heard some other pastors, uh, my Protestants in general, who mm -hmm. have also spoken about that, because I believe in what is called believers baptism. You know, we don't, you mm -hmm. know, I even tell people one of the reasons I like the Book of Mormon is it, it, it teaches against infant baptism. But well, you know, this was a fantastic uh part one to this uh, fascinating and interview. i definitely have to go because it is seven yeah so i want to thank you so much uh, benjamin schaefer for coming on i want to remind my audience to uh, like and subscribe and hit the uh notification button to be informed when a new video is out we're going to continue this conversation and peace out